Hi everyone, I'm Mark Lee. I'm the director of the ERM Sustainability Institute. I'm really pleased to be hosting another session of the Sustainable Connections podcast. For those of you who might be new, the idea of Sustainable Connections is that we want to talk to people working across this field, particularly in the private sector, who are looking at the types of collaboration and partnerships the literal connections that are necessary to solve the big planetary challenges that we face in the sustainability field. Really lucky to be joined by Adam Brennan, who is the Group Director of Sustainability at Thai Union, and also Yulia Dobrov-Lyubova, one of the leads in our global corporate sustainability and climate change practice, and also a fellow partner at ERM. Adam, I'm going to turn to you first, and I'm going to ask each of you to introduce yourselves just a little bit before we get into organizations. I'd love you to explain a little bit about your present role. I'd actually like to hear a highlight from your career and your past experience that you think has helped bring you where you are today, and maybe something about your present work that's motivating, challenging, the reason you get up and do this every day. So Adam first, and then Yulia, it'll be the same question to you. Well, Mark, first of all, thank you for having me uh, on your podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. I joined Thai Union uh, about two years ago now, and I have the responsibility of spearheading the next iteration of our sustainability strategy that we call Sea Change. Prior to Thai Union, I actually spent just over a decade in the footwear and fashion industry, driving sustainability challenges and and, and topics across a global supply chain. And so a lot of people have asked me, well, why make the move? And actually, there's a huge amount of insight. There's a huge amount of learnings that we can apply across industries. And so it's really been super interesting for me to benchmark where, where the footwear and apparel industry is compared to where we are with seafood and bring bringing in some of those learnings in terms of what we know that works and what we know that that doesn't. Obviously, you know, in terms of milestones in in my career and certainly at Thai Union, I have to say it's the launch of our, our new strategy where we set very ambitious commitments towards 2030. And Mark, I look forward to taking you through some of those highlights. Terrific. We'll look forward to hearing more about sea change. Look forward to hearing you actually pull some of those lessons and learning from another industry into the current role. I think people's ability to do that is essential to us solving problems faster across industry as a whole. But Yulia, give us a little bit of background on you and your role as well. Thank you very much, Mark, and uh, good morning, Adam, as well. Uh, pleasure to be with you today. My name is Yulia Dobralubova. Uh, you almost nailed it, Mark. <laughs> I'm a partner at ERM Thailand, um, and I've been based in Thailand, actually, for the last 14 years. And I lead corporate sustainability and climate change service line and a team of uh, more than 200 consultants already across Asia uh, that work with our clients across different sectors, mostly at the corporate level. Uh, at ERM Sustainability is our business and everything we do is actually supporting our clients, uh, corporates, uh, financial institutions, governmental institutions in their sustainability journey, and especially myself and my team in the food and beverage sector here in Asia. And I'm particularly pleased to see how companies that are headquartered in Asia actually become global leaders in ESG and sustainability and proactively lead initiatives uh, across the globe in this sector and in this space. Thank you. Now, one of the fun things about doing this podcast is talking to people in different regions, discovering the similarities and the differences. Um, Adam, I want to get into the Thai Union story. So can you give a bit of context for the organization 
and its past work in the sustainability space maybe bring us up to that current sea change story? Absolutely, Mark. So for those uh, listeners that are not familiar with Thai Union, we are one of the world's largest seafood processors. We are headquartered in Bangkok, Thailand. We're listed on the Thai Stock Exchange. And predominantly, we operate across three categories. Those are ambient seafood, frozen and chilled seafood, and then also pet care. And so some of these species that we're heavily focused on and have been focused on in the past is really on our tuna supply chain. We introduced our first sustainability strategy back in 2016, when there was a bright spotlight on the industry of how we can progress towards more sustainable procurement. And so since that date, we've been working on both social and environmental topics within our global tuna supply chain. Obviously, that strategy that you mentioned that is just a few weeks old is really designed to challenge ourselves on what we mean by leadership within the sustainable seafood space. And so Thai Union, through all of our efforts over the last number of years, have made a huge amount of progress when it comes to tuna. We are ranked number one on the DGSI, the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. We are ranked number one on the Seafood Stewardship Index. So it's clear that we've made a lot of progress. But obviously, leadership in definition should be constantly challenged. And that's what our 2030 strategy sets out to achieve. What do we mean by leadership in 2030? And so our new sustainability plan is designed to provide unified solutions for both people and planet. And within the new strategy, we're targeting five future outcomes. Human and labor rights, health and wellness are under the people side. And then on the planet side, we're looking at climate change, biodiversity, and circularity. And Adam, how much different, how much broader is the new strategy than the one that it replaced? If now we've got those five categories, the human and labor rights, health, climate change, biodiversity, etc. Was all that in there before? Now it's deeper? Is some of that new to the, to the wider plan? Obviously, as I said, our focus has been on tuna to date. But as I gave you that very brief introduction, we are not only a tuna processor. We also have a large aquaculture footprint. We have a large pet care footprint. And so what we did through the co-creation phase of this new strategy is go through all of the social and environmental impacts that occur at a group level. And so this is really designed to be holistic. To give you an example of that, when we created our first strategy, that worked against four of the sustainable development goals. This new strategy now targets 10 of the SDGs. So that just gives you an idea of now how holistic we're being. Some of the new commitments that we've added are in climate change, are in aquaculture, are around circularity and our own global manufacturing footprint. We have operations obviously across Asia, specifically in Thailand, but also in Vietnam, across Europe and Africa, and also the US. And so this is a group-wide strategy um, that really kind of pushes that boundary in terms of what we're trying to achieve over the next few years. I would say, Mark, you know, this is not just the announcement of a new sustainability strategy. We've been very ambitious with some of the commitments that we're going out with, but we've also made sure that we're backing this up with the financial resources that are needed to execute. And some days, you know, that is that is somewhat lacking when companies announce new commitments. So within this, 
Thai Union have dedicated an investment of $200 million between now and 2030, which is the equivalent of our entire net profit from last year. Wow. Okay. So there is a real absolutely putting your money where it matters and backing up the promises with the resources to deliver, which I love to hear. You you told us that the new strategy was about defining or redefining what leadership means. Um, I want to take a, a step further into that and unpick what a sustainable fishery is in Thai Union's eyes. And especially given you gave us that geographic range of operations, is a sustainable fishery the same everywhere or does that vary globally? Maybe there are some baseline criteria that are always in play and then local geographic or other conditions that come into it. But help us out. Tell us what sustainable fisheries mean to Thai Union. Sure. So I think first up, we have to just be clear that Thai Union do not own any fishing vessels ourselves. We are a seafood processor. And what that means is that we really have to undertake a huge amount of supplier engagement to cascade our requirements down to the supply chain. Now, I mentioned that we started our work in tuna in 2016. When we announced those commitments, we announced that by 2020, we would like 75% of our tuna to be either certified or coming from what we call a fishery improvement project, which is an, an independent framework with oversight that makes sure that those fisheries are progressing towards the requirements of certification, which can be a multi-year process, in addition to safeguarding the workers in our supply chain. We actually exceeded that commitment and we upgraded it in 2020 with new ambitions and goals for 2025. So let me talk you through those 2025 goals, because that is really our definition of a sustainable fishery. First up then is the amount of certified product and product that is coming from a fishery in those FIPS. And we have the commitment for 100% of the tuna that we source to be coming from these fisheries. The second requirement then is to make sure that there are necessary instruments to safeguard and protect those workers and fishers that are on board the vessels. Social and labour issues has been at the heart of our sea change strategy from the very beginning and is also at the heart of these new commitments that we've just announced. The third then is looking at traceability. Right. And traceability is really the backbone of our sustainability strategy, being able to trace our tuna down to a vessel or a group of vessels really enables Thai Union to undertake many of these other commitments. We are also driving conservation measures. And these are defined by the International Seafood Sustainability Foundation. So we've been working with the industry to define what exactly best practice look like and what we expect from some of the vessels in these fisheries. There are then also more the legislation elements to this. So each fishery has its own regional fishery management organization, what we call an RFMO. And we want to make sure that all of the vessels in our supply chain are acting according to these measures. And then the last piece to this is what we refer to as on the water monitoring. And this is really a groundbreaking commitment that we have with the Nature Conservancy, where we want all of the vessels in our tuna supply chain to have on the water monitoring. And what we mean by that is either human observers or electronic monitoring. So that we audit the vessel when it comes into port, 
But when that vessel is out at sea, there is also some level of visibility in terms of the actions of that vessel. So those are the six areas on how we define a sustainable fishery. In our 2030 commitments, we've upgraded this to also go beyond certification, specifically as it relates to endangered, threatened and protected species. Here we have announced a new partnership with the Sustainable Fisheries Partnership that is understanding the risk across our global fisheries as it relates to ETP interactions. And we're driving now best practices down our supply chain in order to minimize those interactions. And if one does occur, how that vessel and how the fishers should react. Thanks, Adam. Going to come back to various pieces of that, including where you ended up on how you push this through the supply chain. But Yulia, want to bring your voice in and Adam's given us a, a definition or maybe the elements of a definition, everything from certification through safeguarding people to the conservation measures and so on. What do you see across the industry as a whole? Can you give us a bit broader perspective? Almost, is this normal? Is this common best practice? Is this on the very kind of vanguard of the leadership edge? What's going on in the fisheries industry globally more broadly? And how fast are things moving? Right, definitely. Well, first of all, uh, maybe starting from the main challenges and at the global scale, we still see such issues like increasing demand for seafood globally, coupled with unsustainable fishing practices that still exist and still are sometimes hard to control, especially by companies like Thai Union. And all of that, together with the climate change impact, obviously creates additional pressure on fisheries sources, marine ecosystems as a whole. First and foremost, when we talk about sustainable fishing practices, this is really something that companies together with the uh, suppliers increasingly trying to address. And this is where the traceability of data actually is so important. When we talk about the increasing demand for seafood, again, this is where different forecasts and modeling could come into picture. And of course, as well, uh, managing overfishing practices that still exist. If we talk about climate change, this also affects ocean temperatures and also the distribution and abundance of fish species. Globally, ocean temperatures are predicted to increase by 1 to 4 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, according to different scenarios of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. These changes obviously impacting marine life. Also, what's important is that companies really need to start assessing how these climate risks may impact the, the feedstock and also what could be done actually to manage this. And on top of everything, I should definitely add the point on limited data and monitoring practices. Thankfully, we have now more advanced technologies that allow for better data traceability, but the data issue is still one of the most important issues for the fishery sector in particular. Now, if we talk about more specific issues related to Asia, more so Southeast Asia, we cannot but mention social aspects of sustainable fisheries because this is where we see 
a high percentage of people who are actually engaged in the fishery sector, whose livelihoods actually are connected to, to the fishing. So definitely social element is very, very important and how we can support uh, those whose life economies actually depend on the sector in a sustainable manner. However, fishing sector also has enormous opportunities going forward where ESG actually can help grasp potential value and among different opportunities and initiatives that we see around the globe and here in Southeast Asia. Of course, partnerships and collaboration, and Adam also mentioned some of these initiatives, basically where we see companies coming together with NGOs, research and development institutions to advance technologies, to build up consumer awareness about products that they purchase and how actually their consumer preferences also impact the overall value chain. Lastly, also I need to mention the fact that achieving sustainable fisheries is a complex but vital goal and really, really needs collaborative efforts of everyone. We also see advancement of policies and regulations across the globe that also support companies and uh, the whole value chain in uh, implementing sustainable practices. However, the advancement of these policies and regulations is not equal in different regions. In, for instance, we know that Thai Union regularly conducts this assessment of policy and regulations across the globe, given that they are such a widespread company. And that could be also another recommendation for other companies in the sector to regularly monitor these changes uh, in the policy regulatory landscape to be prepared especially if you would like to penetrate new markets or attain your competitive positions. It sounds like many practices advancing, not uniformly spread, and just also an enormous complex challenge. Adam, you'd already gone a little distance into issues of certification and traceability. You mentioned monitoring in partnership with Nature Conservancy. Yulia, you kind of doubled down on that, talking about the real challenges of data traceability and getting the kind of quality of information maybe that we need. So Adam, I wanted to go back to you and maybe this is a place that your footwear and apparel experience comes in given traceability learnings there over years, but supply chains in every industry are hard to penetrate. In the food industry, things can be difficult to trace. We know that the greatest source of environmental and social impact for most organizations is found in the value chain. How do you get the kind of quality of data that you need to get the job done? I think through a huge amount of focus and effort and prioritization. When we started off in 2016, we started with traceability, really as the enabler of all of these future commitments that we've been working on since. And so because of that prioritization, we now have the ability to actually trace all of our tuna right down to the vessel. So, you know, that is a remarkable ability given the, the complexities and the challenges within the industry. So you can actually go to one of Thai Union's brands. If you're in the UK, as an example, you can pick up a can of John West. There is a QR code on that can and the consumer can scan it 
to understand exactly the fishery that that product has been sourced from and some high level information as well about the performance of that fishery. In addition to some of the consumer facing transparency that we've been driving, we've also been driving industry transparency as well. At the end of the day, it is transparency that helps to drive accountability for organizations like Thai Union. There is a website called the Ocean Disclosure Project, where you can actually log on, you can see all of the species that Thai Union are sourcing, and you can see the fisheries and the flag states that are associated with that sourcing as well. And so we want to be extremely transparent in terms of what our global footprint is and the performance of this. Now, all of that is enabled by the ability to trace our products back down to source. And so what we've really been focusing on over the last few years is what does traceability mean? You know, we're discussing it like there is alignment on this podcast, but actually when you get down into the nuts and bolts, there is no clear definition of what we mean by traceability, right? And we are in the middle of the supply chain. We supply into some of the world's biggest retailers, right? And what that means is that I get all of the requests for traceability. And they come in many different formats, everything from a phone call to a completely automated and digitalized system. But let's be honest, still the majority is in Excel, right? And so what we've worked really hard on at Thai Union is trying to standardize and create that definition of what we mean by traceability. And so we have played a fundamental role in that standardization through an organization which is called the Global Dialogue on Seafood Traceability. They are beginning to set the exact key data elements that need to be collected, where they need to be collected in the supply chain, and in what formats they need to be collected in. Because our vision is to have an interoperable traceability across the entire value chain. And Adam, one quick follow-up. I'm just curious, you mentioned consumers, you mentioned folks up and down the supply chain finding you in the middle and therefore finding you to be a great source of info. But where does the most pressure or or interest for traceability come from? Is it consumers? Is it the retailers who put it on the shelves where we find the brands? Is there a particular point in the value chain where the traceability pressure is greatest? I think the pressure is increasing, um, especially as we start to look at some of the legislation developments as it comes, you know, if we look specifically at the EU, there is an increasing focus on human rights due diligence. And it's the acknowledgement that without traceability, you're very limited in terms of the due diligence that, you know, a retailer can perform on their supply chain. So I think that's a growing area of pressure. If you go over to the US, the FDA has, has announced that from uh, the start of 2026, they've got a new regulation called FISMA, uh, where again, traceability uh, is expected for not just seafood products, but for many products. So legislation is definitely playing a role. But if I go back to 2016, Mark, it was really that enabler that that was the biggest pressure at that time. We could not go out and work on sustainable fisheries, we could not go out and audit our vessels without knowing exactly who those vessels are and without having that traceability information. So for Thai Union, the biggest pressure point was really the role that traceability plays in enabling all of these other commitments that we're trying to work on. And Adam, I'm struggling with one thing in my own head, not what you said, but I was trying to connect traceability and data quality And then I paused kind of to ask myself mentally whether they're actually the same thing. You could have 
traceability or visibility into a system, but still not have the data quality that you desire. So is the one an enabler of the other? And is data quality now getting to where you want it to be for decision making? Or, or is it traceability first, data quality second? How do they interact? There's obviously, you know, complete synergies between the two. You can have one without the other. You know, right now for us to put information in the public domain shows that we have a level of confidence in that data quality. But that again has taken several years to get to that point. Now, a lot of the data that flows through the supply chain is still manual. We collect everything from captain statements. Now we have to transfer those manual documents into an electronic format. And that's something that, again, as we work on our new commitments towards 2030, we're trying now to completely digitalize that process. That will obviously help improve data quality even further. You know, no surprise that given the fragmentation of the supply chain, given the number of people that we need to be collecting data from, you know, data quality is an issue. And there, again, legislation has a huge role to play in providing some sort of governance over that process as well as some of the voluntary initiatives that we started ourselves. I fully agree with Adam that a lot of things are still being done in Excel. We have seen quite a lot of uh, interesting digital solutions appearing in the market that help companies digitize the data flows. That could be specifically to greenhouse gas emissions or wider ESG data. But now the question is, because there are so many providers out there, which solution to select and how to also integrate this in possibly already existing IT systems that the companies may use for, say, financial data flows. But uh, we definitely see a big shift to digital in the space. And I should say for food and beverage sector in particular, uh, digitalization is important because of the enormous amounts of data and also uh, stakeholders that you would need to cover for better traceability and data quality. Great. Got it. And a space that we might want to come back to. But you said there are more questions than answers. Adam, I have more questions for you to be sure. And I'm going to switch topics a little bit. Um, it was Climate Week, New York last week, the New York version, right at the same time as the UN uh, General Assembly. I, I went, I don't always go, but um, found it as overwhelming as such events always are. And yet it was really interesting last week listening to the blend of conversation around climate and nature. And when you were listing off the five things kind of helping frame your strategy earlier, those were both on the list. And I know also you've got a science-based targets initiative climate target. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And if you're developing nature and biodiversity targets within that strategy, can you kind of connect those two things for us? I think Climate Week was really interesting this year because of that blended conversation between climate and nature, right? And it's great now that we're at a point where it is a blended conversation because for a very long time, many organizations and many global voices have been specifically focused on, on the climate emergency. So I was actually at Climate Week as well. I was actually speaking at the UN General Assembly at a sideline event organized by the UN Global Compact. Um, the UN Global Compact have an ocean stewardship coalition where I spoke uh, on a panel with the heads of state of Bermuda and Belize and ministers from, from Norway and various other states on the role that government and the private sector becoming stewards of the ocean. So I think it's great now that nature has allowed a voice. We still need to work on raising the profile of the ocean. 
Life Below Water, SDG 14, is one of the lowest, or it is the lowest funded SDG out of all of them. And so we all have a role to play in making sure that it's clear on the role that the ocean can play for both climate and biodiversity related issues. Now, if we focus specifically on climate, as part of our new strategy, we are the first global seafood processor to set science-based targets. Those are approved by the SBTI. For those of us that don't like abbreviations, that's the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And that is really the gold star when it comes to the how the private sector should be setting climate targets. And so under our climate commitments, there are actually four goals. There are two that are short-term, there are two that are long-term. The two short-term commitments are a minus 42% reduction in scope one and two. So these are the emissions that are coming directly from Thai Union's own operations. Then in addition to that, we've set a scope three target, which is also minus 42%. Now, one of the questions I'm often asked is where does 42% come from? Well, that's where the SBTI methodology comes into play. Within that methodology, there is the 1.5 degree pathway, which I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, because that is the temperature that we cannot exceed to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of climate change. So, minus 42% reduction across scope one, two, and three by 2030. The inclusion of scope three is so important because that represents the emissions in the value chain. And for Thai Union's greenhouse gas inventory, that is about 90% of our total inventory. Mm -hmm. The two additional targets then are more future focused. They're stretch targets as we look towards 2050, and they are aligning with this net zero principle. So what that means in practice is that we want to achieve a minus 90% reduction across scopes one, two, and three by 2050 with the ability to offset the remaining uh, residual emissions as we work towards those 2050 targets. So that in a nutshell is commitments to climate. Within those, we've identified three hotspots predominantly in our tuna and shrimp supply chains, uh, and then also within packaging. So as we look at tuna, it's predominantly the fuel that's used on board the vessels. If we look at shrimp, it is predominantly the fuel and energy that is used by the farms, but then also impacts related to feed as it relates to soy and potential deforestation. And then obviously packaging, a lot of our packaging are cans, and that also can obviously have a significant carbon impact as well. So from SBTI and climate targets and the detail, including the hotspots, through to the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, which was just released last Monday at the start of Climate Week. Are you putting that in play as well, maybe with or without TNFD, setting specific nature and biodiversity targets also? I mentioned that I was happy with kind of the prominence of, of nature and biodiversity at Climate Week. But I think it's important here to emphasize that working on biodiversity and nature is nothing new for Thai Union. It might be a relatively new topic on the global stage, but we are a seafood company and we are reliant on the health of the world's oceans. And so when we started our first sustainability strategy back in 2016, a lot of that work was focused on biodiversity, on making sure that we maintain biologically relevant fish stocks within the fisheries where we operate protecting those fish stocks at biologically sustainable levels. All of this is related to biodiversity. When a fish stock collapses, it can take decades to recover. 
And so we've really been working on these topics already for a number of years. I mentioned how we've upgraded our 2030 commitments to protect endangered, threatened and protected species. So again, a lot of this is not new for Thai Union. We continue to challenge ourselves. We continue to ramp up whilst we also look at this global movement towards science-based targets for nature and the associated reporting. So I think standardization is important, specifically as we look to stakeholder groups like investors that are looking to simplify uh, their understanding and what the private sector is doing in this area. But again, Working on nature, working on biodiversity is not new for us. We've got a lot of new commitments that are challenging how we look at this. Great. And Yulia, can you again give us a broader view across the food and beverage sector in Asia? Is there considerable uptake of science-based targets? And is TNFD penetrating people's imagination and really factoring in their plans? Or might be too early, particularly on the latter, but I'd, I'd love that broader perspective. Absolutely, Mark. Well, first of all, I should mention that SBTI is really one of the most recognized and science-aligned frameworks how to define um, your climate-related targets. But the main challenge of SBTI as a standard is that it really requires companies to look into their overall value chain emissions and especially um, what, what we call scope three emissions, right? And especially data related to your purchase goods and services, which is quite important for this sector in particular. And uh, that becomes a limiting factor for many companies who are not yet at this stage to be able to, well, transparently understand what the greenhouse gas emissions are upstream or downstream, and also to define their targets and commit to those targets again. Overall, in the food and beverage sector in Asia, there are only 22 companies that have an approved near-term target, which is in line with the 1.5 degrees Celsius. And only three companies, imagine, that have approved long-term target and a zero target. And Thai Union is one of them. So Adam, congratulations. I know how much effort yourself and your sustainability team have put into this, including in scope three emissions assessment and decarbonization pathways. It's really a journey, but I would definitely recommend all companies who have just committed and not yet have these targets published or even just considering going with SBTI to seriously look into this as a good framework that help you understand what the good practice is, what your investors, what your stakeholders are expecting from you and take it at least as a good homework exercise and then based on that decide if you would like to publish it officially, if you would like to make a public commitment, but it will definitely help you going forward in getting access to finance, for example, and the increasing number of lenders, investors are really looking into your climate targets and whether or not they are in line with science. Adam, you mentioned earlier where you have enjoyed standing in the DJSI rankings. You've been top rated under DJSI over time. And Yulia's connected it to the sustainable finance space. Can you talk a little bit about what maintaining high ESG ratings has meant for Thai Union and why that's worth the time and investment. And then how that stretches into the sustainability linked finance. And people may have heard of green bonds. I bet you a few people will have heard of blue finance. You can tell us how that's starting to touch your industry and maybe whether the ratings improve your access to it. Sure. So I think I've got 
three answers to your question, Mark. Yes, no, and don't know. So let me just expand on those three. Please. Yes, it absolutely <laughs> does help. You know, our performance on the DGSI shows that we have a very holistic sustainability strategy. And investors want to see that we are not just focusing on one or the other topic, but that sustainability is deeply embedded within the organization. And that is what the DGSI rankings are able to show. So that is the yes. The no refers to the fact that the investment community still uses a wide number of tools to understand the risks associated with their investments and the performance. So there are a number of different tools that are out there. We focus on a few key ones that we believe is of most relevant to Thai Union investors. But to be honest, this is a maturing space. And when there is you know, somewhat a lack of maturity, you also have a, di you know, a diverse number of tools and a diverse number of methodologies to calculate performance. So that is the no. The don't know refers to the fact that actually very few investors tell us what our performance actually is. Mm. And it's even harder to track. Does Thai Union attract increased investment because of our performance on these ESG scores? So there are your three answers, Mark. I think what I would like to wrap up with is that we see a huge amount of progress within the investment community. And I expect those no's and don't no's increasingly translate into yeses as we move forwards. I do a huge amount of engagement with Thai Union's key investors. We do a lot of sit-down meetings together to explore the role that the investment community have to play in trying to level up the industry. You know, when we talk about leveling up the industry, a lot of people point their fingers to governments and legislation, but I think investors are increasingly recognizing the role that they have to play. But in order to do that, there needs to be simplification, there needs to be more standardization, and there also needs to be more transparency in terms of how they are rating companies so that it can act as an incentive for performance improvements. The yes, no, don't know are fascinating. And it's a whole other conversation. But some of the folks, again, listening will know our Rate the Raiders research. And I'm fascinated to see that people report on both the investor and the corporate side, the issuer side, more use of ratings than ever before, but slightly lower trust and very mixed views of quality. So it gets to that. How is this information actually used? So, Yulia, you, you heard, and we both got a laugh, I think, out of Adam's yes, no, don't know in terms of description of how sustainable finance is moving forward in this sector. If it's that complicated and maybe just that emergent, it's early days, what are your recommendations for food and beverage companies that want to tap into those sustainable finance and maybe even the blue finance streams? Well, I should definitely say that sustainable finance starts being uh, one of the main drivers for companies here in Asia where regulations are just behind those in more developed markets. And definitely when companies, including from the food and beverage sector, come to us as the sustainability consultant, we often observe that the main driver for them actually is to get access to capital or like issuance of the green bond, for example, or social bond. So it's definitely a very important driver. 
We also see the emergence of taxonomies in ASEAN and in Asia broadly, where governments actually develop frameworks for earmarking specific activities, whether they're in line with sustainability activities or climate activities. And my big recommendation for companies in the food and beverage sector or any other sector, in fact, uh, who would like to participate in sustainability link finance or green social finance schemes. First of all, uh, be very clear about your overall sustainability strategy and your overall targets and KPIs related to your key ESG topics. Because what your lenders will be looking at or, or your potential investors is really your current performance, your ambitions, what you would like to achieve, and actually they would provide finance for these initiatives that need to be linked to a bigger picture. And also that links us back to the point on traceability of data, because these days for sustainable finance, it's also very important that all the data that we provide has to be verifiable. And actually there is caveat on the external party verification for uh, for the actual performance achieved to be able to get access to sustainable finance on preferential terms. Adam, last question for you today. It kind of ties to the sustainable connections theme. You mentioned at one point your work with Nature Conservancy. It sounds like there's all the complexity across your supply chain. I'd just love to hear you expand on the role of partnerships and collaborations in Thai Union being able to meet its sustainability goals. Sure. So I think partnerships have been critical to the success of sea change over the last number of years, and they will continue to play a crucial role as we move forward. I think we acknowledge that we don't have all of the expertise in-house. We don't always have all of the resources on the ground where we need them. And so this is where we are trying to identify like-minded partners who are working on similar issues that can help us drive the needed change. But obviously, independent partnerships, what are often NGOs or CSOs, also help to bring credibility to the table and accountability. All of these partnerships that I've mentioned today all have independent reports. You can go onto the Thai Union Sea Change website and you can look at the independent report from the Nature Conservancy on how well we are progressing against our electronic monitoring commitment. We just released our new partnership report from the Sustainable Fisheries Partnership. So setting ambitious goals is only going to get you so far. We need to be open and transparent on where we're making progress, but also hold our hands up in where we're not. Now, as we look forwards, obviously our 2030 strategy is very ambitious. We're only going to be able to achieve this if we activate a wide range of stakeholders. That is everything from the NGO community to investors, to consumers, to our customers, to the academic community as well. It's only going to be through working together collectively are we able to scale the impact that is needed to safeguard the future of our oceans. And Yulia, as we close this out, Adam just gave us kind of a brief future look at how partnerships and collaborations in the field might evolve. I wanted to ask you what you think will be new or next priorities for companies in the seafood sector over the next few years. So partnerships and collaborations might be part of that, but also what else? What should we be looking for on the horizon? 
Uh, well, obviously, uh, strong data management systems for both improving operational efficiency, but also makes uh, supply chains more sustainable. New technologies for more sustainable uh, practices across the industry. On the social side as well, that's where uh, collaboration could be, especially with NGOs and civil society organizations to ensure fair labor practices, workers' rights, ethical treatment, as well as health and nutrition aspects, as well as consumers' education. In as I mentioned before, I also recommend all companies to look into circularity and potential collaboration opportunities around plastic waste, food waste, which is another big topic for, for this industry. And keep track of regulations and policies. That's another important aspect. And that's where you can also work together to potentially even lobby for various changes in the policy regulatory space. So not just a few things, but quite a few things and probably more than there was time to list. In time terms, we are at that point. Uh, I need to just say thank you so much to both of you, Adam and Yulia, for taking the time to give us your insight and, and your thoughts today. It's been a fun journey across definitions of sustainable fisheries through meanings of SBTI, climate targets, to concepts of sustainable finance and how they're touching seafood and a little bit of the vision of the future. I've enjoyed it. I hope all of our listeners have as well. For those of you listening, again, if you're interested in more information on ERM, you can find all that on erm.com and you can follow Sustainable Connections on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. Thanks and goodbye for now.